PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Alter-G. Alter-G's anti-gravity treadmill uses NASA-based air pressure technology to reduce body weight up to 80%. Walk or run with normal mechanics and pain-free. Great for rehabilitation or conditioning. For more information, visit alter-g.com. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for October 2010. This month's research reports focus on a meta-regression analysis of trials on exercise for low back pain, traditional sit-up training versus core stabilization exercises, positive effects of oncological rehabilitation on fatigue, exercises for patients with chronic low back pain, neuromuscular electrical stimulation in women with osteoarthritis, acute care physical therapist practice analysis, physical therapist's workload in the acute care setting, Promoting movement quality in clinical practice, adherence to behavioral interventions for urge incontinence, and cluster analysis of gross motor scores of children with typical development. This month's case report focuses on a triage system for acute care therapy services. This month's perspective article focuses on effects of statins on skeletal muscle. The October issue also includes an editorial, The New Demands of Acute Care, Are We Ready?, by Dr. Daniel Malone, and a reprint of Performance Measures on Cardiac Rehabilitation for Referral to Cardiac Rehabilitation Secondary Prevention Services. First this month, can we explain heterogeneity among randomized clinical trials of exercise for chronic back pain, a meta-regression analysis of randomized controlled trials, by Dr. Manuela Ferreira, Dr. Rob Smates, Stephen Comper, Dr. Paolo Ferreira, and Dr. Luciana Machado. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Exercise programs may vary in terms of duration, frequency, and dosage, whether they are supervised, and whether they include a home-based program. Uncritical pooling of heterogeneous exercise trials may result in misleading conclusions regarding the effects of exercise on chronic low back pain. The purpose of this study was to establish the effect of exercise on pain and disability in patients with chronic low back pain, with a major aim of explaining between-trial heterogeneity. Six databases were searched up to August 2008 using a computerized search strategy. Eligible studies needed to be randomized clinical trials evaluating the effects of exercise for nonspecific chronic low back pain. Outcomes of interest were pain and disability measured on a continuous scale. Baseline demographic data, exercise features, and outcome data were extracted from all included trials. Univariate meta-regressions were conducted to assess the associations between exercise effect sizes and the following eight study-level variables. Baseline severity of symptoms, number of exercise hours and sessions, supervision, individual tailoring, cognitive behavioral component, intention-to-treat analysis, and concealment of allocation. This study has the following limitation. 
only study-level characteristics were included in the meta-regression analyses. Therefore, the implications of the findings should not be used to differentiate the likelihood of the effect of exercise based on patient characteristics. The results show that, in general, when all types of exercise are analyzed, small but significant reductions in pain and disability are observed compared with minimal care or no treatment. Despite many possible sources of heterogeneity in exercise trials, only dosage was found to be significantly associated with effect sizes. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Manuela Ferreira is Research Fellow in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Sydney in Lidcombe, New South Wales, Australia. Next, effects of traditional sit-up training versus core stabilization exercises on short-term musculoskeletal injuries in U.S. Army soldiers, a cluster randomized trial by Dr. John Childs, Dr. Deidre Tan, Patrick Casey, Kimberly McCoy-Singh, Angela Feltman, Allison Wright, Jessica Dugan, Dr. Samuel Wu, and Dr. Stephen George. The U.S. Army has traditionally utilized bent knee sit-ups as part of physical training and testing. It is unknown whether the short-term effects of a core stabilization exercise program without sit-up training may result in decreased musculoskeletal injury incidence and work restriction compared with traditional training. The objective of this cluster randomized trial was to explore the short-term effects of a core stabilization exercise program without sit-up training and a traditional exercise program on musculoskeletal injury incidence and work restriction. The setting was a 16-week training program at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. The study participants were 1,141 soldiers with a mean age of 23 years for whom complete injury data were available for analysis. Twenty companies of soldiers were cluster randomized to complete either the Core Stabilization Exercise Program, 10 companies of 542 soldiers, or the Traditional Exercise Program, 10 companies of 599 soldiers. The core stabilization exercise program included exercises targeting the transversus abdominis and multifidus musculature. The traditional exercise program comprised exercises targeting the rectus abdominis, oblique abdominal, and hip flexor musculature. Research staff recorded all injuries resulting in the inability to complete full-duty responsibilities. Differences in the percentages of musculoskeletal injuries were examined with chi-square analysis. Independent sample t-tests were used to examine differences in the numbers of days of work restriction. Of the 1,141 soldiers for whom complete injury data were available for analysis, 511, 44.8%, experienced musculoskeletal injuries during training that resulted in work restrictions. There were no differences in the percentages of soldiers with musculoskeletal injuries. There also were no differences in the numbers of days of work restriction for musculoskeletal injuries overall or specific to the upper extremity. However, soldiers who completed the traditional exercise program and experienced a low back injury had more days of work restriction. A limitation of this study was the inconsistent reporting of injuries during training. However, the rates of reporting were similar between the groups. 
the incidences of musculoskeletal injuries were similar between the groups. There was marginal evidence that the core stabilization exercise program resulted in fewer days of work restriction for low back injuries. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. John Childs is Associate Professor and Director of Research in the U.S. Army Baylor University Doctoral Program in Physical Therapy at the Army Medical Department Center and School in San Antonio, Texas. Next, Cancer-Related Fatigue and Rehabilitation, a randomized controlled multi-center trial comparing physical training combined with cognitive behavioral therapy, with physical training only, and with no intervention by Dr. Ellen Von Vert, Dr. Anne May, Dr. Irene Korstjens, Dr. Wendy Post, Dr. Seis van der Schans, Dr. Bart Vandenborn, Dr. Ilza Mesters, Dr. Vinand Ross, and Dr. Josit Hoekstra Webers. Research suggests that cancer rehabilitation reduces fatigue in survivors of cancer. To date, it is unclear what type of rehabilitation is most beneficial. This multicenter randomized controlled trial compared the effects on cancer-related fatigue of physical training combined with cognitive behavioral therapy, physical training alone, and no intervention. 147 survivors of cancer were randomly assigned to one of two groups. 76 were assigned to a group that received physical training combined with cognitive behavioral therapy, and 71 were assigned to a group that received physical training alone. In addition, a non-intervention control group was included, consisting of 62 survivors of cancer who were on the waiting lists of rehabilitation centers elsewhere. The study was conducted at four rehabilitation centers in the Netherlands. Physical training, consisting of two hours of individual training and group sports, took place twice weekly and cognitive behavioral therapy took place once weekly for two hours. Fatigue was assessed with the multidimensional fatigue inventory before and immediately after intervention, which was 12 weeks after enrollment. The waitlist control group completed questionnaires at the same time points. Baseline fatigue did not differ significantly among the three groups. Over time, levels of fatigue significantly decreased in all domains in all groups except in mental fatigue in the waitlist control group. Analyses of variants of post-intervention fatigue showed statistically significant group effects on general fatigue, on physical and mental fatigue, and on reduced activation but not on reduced motivation. Compared with the waitlist control group, the physical training only group reported significantly greater decline in four domains of fatigue, whereas the physical training plus cognitive behavioral therapy group reported significantly greater decline in physical fatigue only. No significant differences in decline in fatigue were found between the physical training plus cognitive behavioral therapy group and the physical training only group. When compared with no intervention, physical training combined with cognitive behavioral therapy and physical training alone had significant and beneficial effects on fatigue. Physical training was equally effective as or more effective than physical training combined with cognitive behavioral therapy in reducing cancer-related fatigue, suggesting that cognitive behavioral therapy did not have additional beneficial effects beyond the benefits of physical training. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. 
Lead author Dr. Ellen Von Vert is Principal Investigator in the Center for Rehabilitation and at SHARE in the Graduate School for Healthcare Research, both at University Medical Center Groningen, University of Groningen, in Groningen, the Netherlands. Next, motor control exercises, sling exercises, and general exercises for patients with chronic low back pain. A randomized controlled trial with one-year follow-up by Monica Unsgard Turndell and Margreth Fladmark, Professor Irifind Salveson, and Dr. Otar Veselian. Exercise benefits patients with chronic, nonspecific low back pain. However, the most effective type of exercise remains unknown. This study compared outcomes for low back pain after motor control exercises, sling exercises, and general exercises. This was a randomized controlled trial with a one-year follow-up and was conducted in a primary care setting in Norway. The participants were 109 patients with chronic nonspecific low back pain. The interventions in this study were low-load motor control exercises, high-load sling exercises, or general exercises, all delivered by experienced physical therapists once a week for eight weeks. The primary outcome measure was pain, reported on the numeric pain rating scale after treatment and at a one-year follow-up. Secondary outcome measures were self-reported activity limitation, assessed with the Oswestry Disability Index, clinically examined function, assessed with the fingertip-to-floor test, and fear avoidance beliefs after intervention. The post-intervention assessment showed no significant differences among groups with respect to pain or any of the outcome measures. Mean group differences for pain reduction after treatment and after one year were 0.3 and 0.4 for motor control exercises versus sling exercises. Mean group differences for pain reduction after treatment and after one year were 0.7 and 0.3 for sling exercises versus general exercises. Mean group differences for pain reduction after treatment and after one year were 1.0 and 0.7 for motor control exercises versus general exercises. This study had the following limitation. The nature of the interventions made blinding impossible. This study gave no evidence that eight treatments with individually instructed motor control exercises or sling exercises were superior to general exercises for chronic low back pain. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Monica Unsgard turndell is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Public Health and General Practice, Faculty of Medicine, at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology in Trondheim, Norway. A clinical trial of neuromuscular electrical stimulation in improving quadriceps muscle strength and activation among women with mild and moderate osteoarthritis. By Dr. Rianne Palmieri-Smith, Abby Thomas, Carrie Carbonin-Gutierrez, and Dr. Mary-Fran Sowers. Neuromuscular electrical stimulation has demonstrated efficacy in improving quadriceps muscle strength and activation following knee replacement and ligamentous reconstruction. 
Yet, data are lacking to establish the efficacy of neuromuscular electrical stimulation in people with evidence of early radiographic osteoarthritis. The purpose of this randomized controlled trial was to determine whether neuromuscular electrical stimulation is capable of improving quadriceps muscle strength and activation in women with mild and moderate knee osteoarthritis. 30 women with radiographic evidence of mild or moderate knee osteoarthritis were randomly assigned to receive either no treatment, which is the standard of care, or neuromuscular electrical stimulation treatments three times per week for four weeks. The effects of neuromuscular electrical stimulation on quadriceps muscle strength and activation were evaluated upon study enrollment as well as at 5 and 16 weeks after study enrollment, which represents 1 and 12 weeks after cessation of neuromuscular electrical stimulation among the treated participants. The Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index and a 40-foot walk test were used at each testing session. Improvements in quadriceps muscle strength or activation were not realized for the women in the intervention group. Quadriceps muscle strength and activation were similar across testing sessions for both groups. This study had the following limitations. Women were enrolled based on radiographic evidence of osteoarthritis, not symptomatic osteoarthritis, which could have contributed to the null finding. A type 2 statistical error may have been committed despite an a priori power calculation, and the assessor and the patients were not blinded to group assignment, which may have introduced bias into the study. Four weeks of neuromuscular electrical stimulation delivered to women with mild and moderate osteoarthritis and mild strength deficits was insufficient to induce gains in quadriceps muscle strength or activation. Future research is needed to examine the dose-response relationship for neuromuscular electrical stimulation in people with early radiographic evidence of osteoarthritis. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Rianne Palmieri-Smith is Associate Professor in the School of Kinesiology and at the Bone and Joint Injury Prevention and Rehabilitation Center, both at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Next. Nationwide Acute Care Physical Therapy Practice Analysis identifies knowledge, skills, and behaviors that reflect acute care practice. By Dr. Sharon Gorman, Dr. Ellen Rubble-Hakim, Wendy Johnson, Sue Joy Bose, Dr. Catherine Harris, Dr. Molly Christ, Dr. Karen Holtgrief, Dr. Jennifer Ryan, Dr. Michael Simpson, and Dr. Jean Brian Coe. Acute care physical therapy is a rapidly evolving practice area, but little is known about the skills, knowledge, and behaviors necessary for a clinician to be most effective in this area. The objective of this study was to perform the first nationwide survey of acute care physical therapists to validate the knowledge, skill, and behavior sets that reflect practice parameters specific for acute care physical therapy. The Acute Care Physical Therapy Practice Analysis Survey was created on the basis of current literature and consensus of a nine-member subject matter expert group. The survey sections addressed knowledge areas, professional behaviors, and patient-client management approaches reflecting practice parameters specific for acute care physical therapy. Additionally, respondent demographic information was collected. Pilot testing necessitated minor changes in the survey. After revision, the survey questionnaire was sent to a sample of experienced acute care physical therapists throughout the United States. 
A convenience sample of 522 physical therapists who identified themselves as having extensive experience in acute care practice was used. Of these, 254 completed the survey for a response rate of 48.7%. Through the use of predetermined decision rules, 34 items were eliminated on the basis of a descriptive analysis of survey results, as well as a failure of the items to meet the threshold of specificity for acute care practice as determined through the subject matter expert group consensus. This study had the following limitations. The potential for self-selection bias. A sample weighted heavily with American Physical Therapy Association members and acute care section members. And a small proportion of clinicians with less than one year of acute care experience may limit generalizability of these results. The results of this practice analysis describe distinct knowledge, skills, and behaviors specific for acute care physical therapy. The outcomes of the survey might assist in the development of professional acute care competencies, a petition for the recognition of specialization in acute care physical therapy, or both. In addition, the findings of this practice analysis could serve as the foundation for the development of residencies or fellowships in acute care practice. This article is the subject of a discussion podcast. And e-appendix for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Sharon Gorman is chairperson of the SME Group and associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Samuel Merritt University in Oakland, California. Next, Intervention Goals Determine Physical Therapists' Workload in the Acute Care Setting by Dr. Ava Griel, Erica Huber, Tomas Glorjuzzi, and Dr. Gerald Stuckey. Investigating determinants of physical therapy workload in the acute care setting is essential for planning interventions, for justifying resource allocation, and for reimbursement. The objective of this study was to examine whether International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health, or ICF, intervention goals, ICF categories representing goals of physical therapy interventions typical for an acute care hospital, could predict physical therapy workload in the acute care hospital setting. This investigation was a multi-center, observational, cohort study. Patients were recruited from a representative sample of 32 acute care hospitals across Switzerland if they received physical therapy during their inpatient stay for the treatment of any injury or disease in one of three main diagnostic categories, musculoskeletal, neurological, and cardiopulmonary conditions. Physical therapists completed questionnaires at the time of the patient's discharge to report on ICF intervention goals. Information on workload was collected retrospectively from hospital documentation systems. Multivariable regression models were used to identify the intervention goals independently associated with workload. The mean workload for 642 patients was 370 minutes. The mean age of the patients was 61 years, and 45% of the patients were women. The daily workload for interventions ranged from 33 minutes for cardiopulmonary conditions to 49 minutes for neurological conditions. There were significant variations in workload across hospital sites and medical disciplines. The goal, maintaining a body position, emerged as a significant indicator of a higher workload for all condition groups. Two goals, attention functions and transferring oneself, 
were indicators for neurological and musculoskeletal conditions, respectively. This study has the following limitations. Not all potential predictors of workload could be examined. Other person or setting-specific variables might have been relevant to workload, and case, mix, and clinical practice were representative only for Swiss hospitals. A small set of intervention goals were the major factors influencing physical therapy workload independent of diagnosis or clinical specialty. Describing variability in physical therapists' practices in the acute care setting and relating these data to relevant patient-centered outcomes are the initial steps for improving resource allocation and reimbursement for interventions that maintain or improve functioning. Three e-appendixes accompany this article online. Lead author Dr. Eva Grill is Senior Scientist in the Institute for Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, Germany, and in the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health Research Branch at the World Health Organization Family of International Classifications Collaborating Center at Deutsche Institut für Medizinische Dokumentation und Information and at Swiss Paraplegic Research in Knottville, Switzerland. Next, how can movement quality be promoted in clinical practice? A phenomenological study of physical therapist experts by Professor Liev Shervin, Dr. Schell Christofferson, and Dr. Gunwar Gard. In recent years, physical therapists have paid greater attention to body awareness. Clinicians have witnessed the benefits of supporting their patients' learning of movement awareness through the promotion of their movement quality. The aim of this study was to investigate how physical therapist experts promote movement quality in their usual clinical settings. A phenomenological research design that included a sampling strategy was devised. Using specific criteria, six lead physical therapists nominated a group of physical therapist experts from the fields of neurology, primary health care, and mental health. Fifteen informants, five from each field, agreed to participate. In-depth interviews were conducted with a semi-structured interview guide. The informants were invited to simply describe what they had experienced to be successful therapeutic processes for promoting movement quality. Each interview was audio-taped and transcribed. The data analysis was based on a multi-step model. Three main themes emerged from the data. First, the physical therapist's embodied presence and movement awareness served as a precondition and an orientation for practice. Embodied presence is a bodily felt sense, a form of personal knowing that evokes understanding and fosters meaning. Second, creating a platform for promoting movement quality revealed implementation of psychological attitudes. Third, Action strategies for promoting movement quality suggested a movement awareness learning cycle and components for clinical use. This study demonstrated specific attitudes and skills used by physical therapist experts to promote movement quality in their clinical practice. These results may serve as a therapeutic framework for promoting movement quality in clinical physical therapy, although further research is needed. Lead author Liev Shervin is Associate Professor in the Department of Physiotherapy, Faculty of Health and Social Sciences at Bergen University College in Bergen, Norway.
adherence to behavioral interventions for urge incontinence when combined with drug therapy, adherence rates, barriers, and predictors by Dr. Diane Borello-France, Dr. Catherine Bergio, Dr. Patricia Good, Dr. Elaine Markland, Dr. Kimberly Kenton, R.T. Balasubramayam, and Dr. Anne M. Stoddard for the Urinary Incontinence Treatment Network. Behavioral intervention outcomes for urinary incontinence depend on active patient participation. The purpose of this study was to describe adherence to behavioral interventions, patient-perceived exercise barriers, and predictors of exercise adherence in women with urge-predominant urinary incontinence. This was a prospectively planned secondary data analysis from a two-stage multicenter randomized clinical trial. 307 women with urge-predominant urinary incontinence were randomly assigned to receive either 10 weeks of drug therapy only or 10 weeks of drug therapy combined with a behavioral intervention for urinary incontinence. The behavioral interventions were pelvic floor muscle exercises, urinary incontinence prevention strategies, and delayed voiding. 154 women who received the combined intervention were included in this analysis. Pelvic floor muscle exercise adherence and exercise barriers were assessed during the intervention phase and one year afterward. Adherence to urinary incontinence prevention strategies and delayed voiding were assessed during the intervention only. During intervention, 81% of women exercised at least 5 to 6 days per week and 87% performed at least 30 pelvic floor muscle contractions per day. 92% of the women used the urge suppression strategy successfully. At the 12-month follow-up, only 32% of the women exercised at least 5 to 6 days per week and 56% performed 15 or more pelvic floor muscle contractions on the days they exercised. The most persistent pelvic floor muscle exercise barriers were difficulty remembering to exercise and finding time to exercise. Similarly, Difficulty finding time to exercise persisted as a predictor of pelvic floor muscle exercise adherence over time. This study has the following limitation. Co-administration of medication for urinary incontinence may have influenced adherence. Most women adhered to exercise during supervised intervention. However, adherence declined over the long term. Interventions to help women remember to exercise and to integrate pelvic floor muscle exercises and urinary incontinence prevention strategies into daily life may be useful to promote long-term adherence. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary and is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Mina Sron, Penny Wilson, and Pat Lieblick. Lead author Dr. Diane Borello-France is Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Next, using cluster analysis to interpret the variability of gross motor scores of children with typical development by Karen Eldred and Dr. Joanna Dara. Longitudinal research on gross motor percentile rank scores of children with typical development has documented intra-individual variability of scoring patterns. Clinically, interpreting these fluctuations presents a challenge for therapists. The aim of this study was to determine the utility of cluster analysis as a technique to organize the gross motor scoring patterns of children with typical development into clinically relevant groups. 
This was a descriptive, exploratory study using data from two longitudinal studies. Participants were 66 children with typical development. The children were assessed on the gross motor subscale of the Peabody Developmental Motor Scales at 9, 11, 13, 16, and 21 months of age. They were assessed on the gross motor subscale of the Peabody Developmental Motor Scales second edition at 4, 4.5, 5, and 5.5 years of age. Demographic and health data were collected. Parents were interviewed when the children were 8 years of age. Cluster analysis was conducted. Demographic and health data were compared across clusters. Four distinct and clinically relevant clusters were identified. A significant difference was found among the clusters for total number of illnesses. This study has the following limitation. The children in these analyses were at low risk for gross motor problems. Further research with a more high-risk sample is needed to validate the clinical utility of the identified clusters. Cluster analysis techniques may offer a mechanism to explore longitudinal data in physical therapy research. The techniques provided a mechanism to group data without losing the richness of information provided by the intra-individual variability of scoring patterns. Clinically, examination of distinct scoring patterns may lead to improved accuracy in screening for gross motor concerns compared with the traditional use of single assessment cutoff points. Lead author Karen Eldred is Physiotherapist 2 at the Hinton Healthcare Center in Hinton, Alberta, Canada. This month's case report is Development of a Unique Triage System for Acute Care Physical Therapy and Occupational Therapy Services and Administrative Case Report by Dr. Julie Hobbs, Julia Boyson, Dr. Kimberly McGarry, Dr. Jeffrey Thompson, and Dr. John Nordrum. This administrative case report documents the development of a mechanism by which systematic triage was used to assign patients to therapists in acute care settings. The primary objective was to develop a triage tool to improve patient access to medically necessary therapy services. A unique triage tool and a decision tree were developed to determine which patients referred to therapists for acute care therapy require skilled services. The triage tool was used to examine therapy referrals for patients from two large academic hospitals. Six criteria were used to determine which evaluations should be canceled. During the trial period, the predictive ability of individual triage criterion items was analyzed. The tool was modified and validated, and a decision tree was established. Descriptive and chi-square analyses were performed on all variables of interest. The systematic triage system reduced the number of therapy evaluations that were not appropriate by 29%, resulting in an improvement in the availability of therapy services for patients who required skilled care. The average number of patients per therapist per workday decreased from 18.9 to 12.1 and from 15.1 to 12.8 in the two hospitals. An improvement in a newly developed workload index related to missed patient visits also indicated the success of this project. A novel systematic triage system reduced the number of therapy evaluations that were not appropriate resulting in an improvement in the availability of therapy services for patients who require skilled intervention. 
Lead author Dr. Julie Hobbs is Director of Therapy Services in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. This month's perspective article is Effects of Statins on Skeletal Muscle, a Perspective for Physical Therapists, by Stephanie DeStasi, Torin McLeod, Joshua Winters, and Dr. Stuart Binder McLeod. Hyperlipidemia, also known as high blood cholesterol, is a cardiovascular health risk that affects more than one-third of adults in the United States. Statins are commonly prescribed and successful lipid-lowering medications that reduce the risks associated with cardiovascular disease. The side effects most commonly associated with statin use involve muscle cramping, soreness, fatigue, weakness, and in rare cases, rapid muscle breakdown that can lead to death. Often these side effects can become apparent during or after strenuous bouts of exercise. Although the mechanisms by which statins affect muscle performance are not entirely understood, recent research has identified some common causative factors. As musculoskeletal and exercise specialists, physical therapists have a unique opportunity to identify adverse effects related to statin use. The purposes of this perspective article are, one, to review the metabolism and mechanisms of actions of statins. Two, to discuss the effects of statins on skeletal muscle function. Three, to detail the clinical presentation of statin-induced myopathies. Four, to outline the testing used to diagnose statin-induced myopathies. And five, to introduce a role for the physical therapist for the screening and detection of suspected statin-induced skeletal muscle myopathy. Lead author Stephanie DeStasi is a graduate student in the Biomechanics and Movement Science program at the University of Delaware in Newark, Delaware. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825. Five.